Welcome to A Public Affair here on KGNU. I'm Stacy Johnson. As wildlife and plant habitat continues to decrease around the world, and as many communities in the Western United States grapple with water supply shortages and strongly consider putting a halt to water-thirsty landscaping, questions mount if the existing ecological environment can sustain or flourish amongst an ever-growing built environment. In February, I sat down with Jim Tulstra, Executive Director of the High Plains Environmental Center in Loveland, Colorado. The 76-acre center includes gardens and trails surrounded by two lakes and is open daily during daylight hours. What is unique about the High Plains Environmental Center is that its founder is a developer and the center is located in the heart of the Centura housing development. Because of its location within an urban neighborhood, the work of the High Plains Environmental Center focuses on a range of conservation issues, chiefly among them is educating the public on land restoration, native plants, biodiversity, and sustainable landscapes amongst the built environment. Our discussion with Jim Tulstrup includes those topics and much more, including wetlands restoration, weeds, and turning a lawn into a native landscape. What is the High Plains Environmental Center about and what is the mission? Our mission is to help communities to incorporate nature as part of the community design. And we've worked with a lot of developers and HOAs to create nature within the communities where people live. I say create nature because these are not places that are typical conservation, where we're just drawing a circle around it and saying, don't build here, this is a pristine natural area, but more taking what was weedy, disturbed farmland and turning it into natural areas restored with native plants that can create habitat for plants and animals. Can you provide a brief overview of your professional background and how your journey brought you to the High Plains Environmental Center? I studied horticulture at the Arnold Arboretum of Harvard University and had a a garden design business in Kennebunk, Maine. Um, Among my clients were the First Lady Barbara Bush and the senior um, President George Bush. And I really came into this from a perspective of ornamental horticulture. Although I've always loved wildflowers and nature and and turtles and frogs, even when I was a, a kid. And so the, the wildlife and wildflower part of it has always been part of things that I love. Um, I was an estate gardener in Austin, Texas, and then in the 90s and moved to Northern Colorado and with my wife in 1998. And I did landscape design in Northern Colorado for about four years. And then I was the land steward at, well, it was called the Shambhala Mountain Center. It's now called the Drala Mountain Center. And that's where the notion of creating landscaping with native plants really became the restoration and landscape design became one and the same thing. And the reason was it's at 8,000 feet in elevation here in Colorado. There's a pretty limited plant palette in terms of what we typically think of as ornamental plants. And it just made sense in that environment to to focus on, on Western native plants and Colorado plants. And that for, for me is where landscape design and ecological restoration really just became one and, and the same thing. And then leaving there, in um, came came here in t- 2007, 
and really had the vision from the very beginning of creating something like a botanic garden completely driven by the idea of of utilizing native plants. So can you provide a, a brief history of the High Plains Environmental Center and your emphasis on native plants? The High Plains Environmental Center is an interesting evolution because it began when Chad and Troy McQuinney brought their plans for Centera, 3,000-acre mixed-use master-planned community, to the city of Loveland in the, in the late 90s. And the city said at build out, this must remain 20% open space. So McQuinney hired a company called Cedar Creek to do a habitat evaluation of, of the land within Centera. And they particularly looked at the lakes, um, Houts Reservoir and Equalizer Lake, and recommended setbacks from the lake of anything from 75 feet to 300 feet. At that time, McGuinney was working with another company to, to build the residential part of the development, High Plains Village. Um, that company was McStain Neighborhoods, and their president, Tom Hoyt, was a lifelong conservationist and developer, which seems like two very different things, but he always said that where the bulldozers are out pushing dirt around, that's where we have an opportunity to do some restoration and some conservation. And he recommended creating this standalone nonprofit, donating the land that was identified by Cedar Creek to the nonprofit, and then creating a funding mechanism that's connected with a fee assessed along with the issue of building permits in Centera to help pay for the management of that natural preserve in perpetuity. So that was the beginning of the High Plains Environmental Center and a really unique funding model and a really unique model for restoring nature in, in the midst of development. Do you see that history or the potential of that being replicated elsewhere with other beginning developments? Exactly, yeah. Well, that that is very much what we are focused on. It, it was never our intention to corner the market on restoration, but to make this something that all communities can do, and we actually help a lot of communities up and, up and down the front range to either create this natural component at the very beginning, in the, at the outset, in the community design, or to retrofit areas that are turf grass, that are, we have a lot of HOAs come to us and say, we're spending $35,000 a year just taking care of this grass. Is there some other alternative? So we have helped people to, to transform those areas into restored native grass. So just to confirm, can sustainable and native landscaping occur within a built environment or amongst urban growth? Is that a yes? That's emphatically a yes. And it, I think it's interesting that we have brought not only plants from the East Coast or Europe or other environments, but, but a concept of what the world should look like. And I think it goes back to, you know, a lot of people are of European heritage and this notion of as you know where sheep may safely graze you know from the england the the idea of of these expansive parklands and lawns and so on 
it just doesn't apply to Colorado. But Colorado is beautiful to begin with, so we work so hard to to make it to turn it into New Jersey or or e- East Coast environments where we have beautiful plants that have evolved here and are adapted to this environment. So yes, absolutely. Um, here at the High Plains Environmental Center, we have extensive gardens that showcase the native plants. Um, but throughout Centera, we we've used um, a, a tremendous amount of native plants in the landscaping. Can you explain your native plant program? For years, I have been giving talks about that we need to create sustainable landscape that our native pollinators and birds and so on have co-evolved with these native plants and and it's critical that we use them in our landscaping and it just makes sense because we're preserving some of Colorado's natural beauty. And then people say, where can we get the plants? And that's a big question. There, it is, It's difficult to find truly native plants. And as a response to that, we have a nursery here at the High Plains Environmental Center where we're growing over 150 species of Western native plants from seed, and we make those available to, to the public. But it's definitely mission-driven because it is critical that we begin to change the landscape industry to using things that are what wildlife depends on and also plants that are adapted to this landscape. I'm noticing the term suburbitat amongst the High Plains Environmental Center vernacular. (laughs) Can you define that for listeners and how it fits into the fold of your work and the work of the High Plains Environmental Center? That's a term that was created by the first executive director of High Plains Environmental Center, Ripley Hines, and it combines suburb and habitat. And the word itself is a response to the urban, suburban sprawl that started happening, you know, in post-World War II, populations growing and people wanting to have a picket fence and a, a house of their own and so on. And the problem with that is it's just displaced so much of the habitat or taken farmland and turned it into sprawling homes and yards. And... Um, Doug Tallamy, a person who wrote a book called Bringing Nature Home and Nature's Best Hope, talks about we have 40 million acres of turf grass in the United States. We use more herbicide and pesticide per square foot on turf than any other single crop. Here in Colorado, we use 18 gallons of water per square foot per growing season for turf grass. And nationally, we use 800 million gallons of gasoline to just to mow lawns. So there's an enormous amount of resources being directed to this one crop that really doesn't provide much of anything that supports biodiversity. If you are just tuning in, this is A Public Affair on KGNU. I'm Stacy Johnson. On today's segment, we are visiting with Jim Tolstrup, Executive Director of the High Plains Environmental Center, discussing a range of conservation topics within an urban environment. Can you describe what a sustainable native landscape looks like? And, and would that be similar to what the Front Range region looked like prior to non-natives settling here? 
Well, using native plants doesn't necessarily mean the landscape is wild or looks wild. You can use native plants in very, very formal arrangements. And there are good examples of, of that here in Centero. There are these very straight bands of grasses that, that often use native species versus exotic introduced species. Uh, one example is we, we have large bands of the little blue stem grass. And I would much rather see that kind of grass because it may go to seed and escape into nearby ponds. And I would rather have that than the maiden grass that's uh, introduced from Asia invading our wetlands. So there is that aspect too. If plants are going to jump the fence and get into open spaces, I would much rather see the, the native plants. But I think part of it also is the maintenance of those of these native landscapes and or habitat landscapes. There is a tendency to clean everything up in the fall, cut everything back, make it look very manicured. And that is the death knell for pollinators that might be attracted to that sort of landscape. And the reason is a lot of pollinators might overwinter in the hollow stems of plants or overwinter in the the base of the plants or under leaves and so on. Another reason to leave the the plants like that in the in the fall is that it protects the plants themselves from our frequent freeze thaw cycles. And it just it creates an interesting textured landscape in the fall. I love to see like the little snow caps that that collect on top of flowers from, from the summer. And that's something unique about about the environment here in Colorado is all the, the plants just freeze dry in the in the fall versus on the east coast or places that are, are wetter, the plants just turn into a kind of a, a rotting mass in the fall and kind of get crushed by snow. Here they just seem to freeze dry in place and it's beautiful. Um, that really does sort of replicate something that happens in nature here. So, I mean, I think native plant landscapes could be anything from just a wild patch with, with that really just kind of looks like a little section of the short grass prairie, or it could be a very intentionally arranged landscape, but using the vernacular of our Western native plants. Can a novice do native or sustainable landscape work? Absolutely, yes. And just, I think there's there's some principles involved, and that is one, if we think about our landscape design as an ecological restoration, it means we're looking at conditions that exist within within the site. And even in the tiniest home yard, there are microclimates. There's shady, cool places, there's sunny, hot places, there's wetter places, drier places. If we think about the the topography and the hydrology that exists even in a tiny little yard and group plants together in communities then we can replicate some of the the functions in, in the environment and there are so many relationships between the native plants and the wildlife we have over 900 species of, of native bees here in in Colorado and over 100 species of, of bees have shown up here in our gardens since we have, have started to, to plant native plants. So it's a matter of if you build it, they, they will come. What should folks consider 
when attempting doing sustainable landscape design or management. If they want to convert their yard, get away from ornamentals, get away from Kentucky bluegrass. Well, I think part of it is grouping plants together in communities that have similar requirements. So if there's plants that need to be have a little bit of moisture, those are grouped together in, in a zone. There are plants that you can plant and water when you transplant them and never water them again. And those plants could be grouped together in a, a zone. And that is one of the seven principles of xeriscaping is, is creating these, these hydrological zones where plants are, are grouped together. I think that that's one of the, the central features in using native plants. You know, the other thing is what, if we say native plants, I always ask, na- native to what? I mean, to say, if we say native to Colorado, that is an arbitrary political designation. Colorado is a state and it has this kind of arbitrary boundary, but it doesn't mean everything within that state is in the same climate zone or the same um, ecological zone. In fact, in Colorado, we have more climate zones than a great many other states because of we, we have the changes in elevation here. I think if we live along the front range, we should be thinking in terms of the prairie. The shortgrass prairie, or just the prairie in, in general, are ecosystems that we have a lot in common with. And that is thinking of everything from here to Montana to North Texas and east to Illinois. Those are all the, the, the prairie states. So using plants that are adapted to the environment where, where we're de- designing our garden. There's a man in um, Tucson, Arizona, Brad Lancaster, a, a landscape architect. And the story that I've heard is that he cut a hole in the curb at his home and let the water flow into his landscape, which was kind of shaped like a bowl. So the water would flow in there and percolate into the ground. And the city became aware that he had done this and they came out, they're gonna write him a citation. And, and he said, okay, I'll just wait a minute. Look at this beautiful park-like landscape here, full of Palo Verde trees and native birds and, and so on. And I never water this landscape. And there must have been some conversations back at the city because now you can apply and the city will come out and knock a hole in your landscape. And the city is creating landscapes instead of like a traffic island that's raised up with landscaping. It, the traffic island is like a bowl with landscaping and it just is a place where the rainwater goes. It's a little bit tricky in, in Colorado because this state was built on water law. And when a raindrop hits your roof, it belongs to somebody else. And only recently, the law has been changed so that in residential use, you can have a small rain barrel to, to water your landscape. But there is no law against channeling that water through your landscape, letting it perk into the ground a little bit, letting that water nourish the plants as it's flowing along and then off into some stormwater pond. and we really should think about, for some reason, landscapers like to make everything flat. But if we have high areas and low areas again, then we can design our, our landscapes with this concept of putting things in the right eco, um, hydrological zone. 
So we have plants here that are wetland plants that in a landscape that is never watered. Um, the blue ver verbane, um, blue verbane, the verbena hastata. It's a wetland plant, but we plant it where our downspouts are, and all that water from the roof is is concentrated there. So every even the tiniest tiniest yard has that kind of different hydrological zones and thinking about where where to put plants. In front of our building we have a bioswale, so it takes all of the water that comes off of our parking lot and it flows through a series of little pools. It's not enough that we would have evaporative loss or anything. It's like Within 24 hours, all that water would disappear after a rainstorm, but it just slows the water down a little bit. It allows it to percolate into the ground. And people always comment about how beautiful the landscaping is in front of our building, and yet we never water that because in the high and dry areas, there are native plants that don't like any water. And in the bottom of it are things like the milkweeds and, and tall grass species and goldenrods that like a little bit more moisture and, and the plants seem to find their, the right zone for, for themselves. And that's a great example of how we can have these rain-nourished gardens. Like It's called passive rainwater harvesting. So just slowing down the water a little bit and letting that perk into to the ground and nourish our landscapes. So for some folks, ecology and economy, growth versus conservation are dichotomies. But it seems here at the High Plains Environmental Center, that is not the case. Is, is that true? That's very true. And it's interesting that you say that the ecology and economy because those two come from uh, the same root word in Greek, oikos, which is the, the household, and ecology is the study of the household, and economy is the management of the household. And I think those absolutely must work to, together. I think one of the mistakes of the environmental movement since the first Earth Day in 1970 is to be ecology versus economy or ecology versus business. Then you get people who um, are doing logging in, on the West Coast saying you care more about owls than you care about my family. I mean, th these, all these things have to be, be considered and to not create kind of um, um, an opposition. But we have this unique formula here where we're benefiting the developer in this 3,000 acre development and the development is also benefiting us. We're also benefiting kids who live here because they get to grow up and see a bird and hear a frog and we're putting nature back in people's lives who, who live in this. Because we have the beautiful nature here, the trails, the birds and so on, people want to live here so it benefits the home builders and it also benefits the environmental center because the, the funding that is collected from the building permits is actually going to the restoration. So it's a really, it's a really cool model where the business interests are funding the environmental interests and the environmental interests are making a more marketable place to live. I think environmental and ecological or e ecological and economic interests are 
also always impacting each other. We just don't always see the real costs of things. And, and people ask sometimes, you know, should someone be able to have a 20,000 square foot home? I think if they have the money, they could, but we need to charge the real cost for things, like what it costs to, to dispose of wastes and, and so on. If we're paying the real costs and not just um, deferring those costs to future generations, to people who are in disenfranchised communities or other parts of the country where we're taking their resources and they're just becoming poorer, um, we're not really demonstrating the real, the real costs. And the source of our, of our wealth is always from, from nature, is always from the earth. So if we're not managing that well, we are, in essence and in fact, degrading our future economic prospects. You're listening to A Public Affair on KGNU. I'm Stacy Johnson. We are visiting with Jim Tulstrup, Executive Director of the High Plains Environmental Center, discussing a range of conservation topics within an urban environment. More information about the High Plains Environmental Center is available by visiting the website suburbitat.org. And the website of the High Plains Environmental Center is a downloadable copy of a book called Suburbitat. And what's mentioned in that book and I'll try to paraphrase this. It says, even with irrigation, the prolonged ugly duckling phase of native open space can be challenging for developers and HOAs with many eyes and opinions surrounding the project. What is your advice in overcoming those sort of challenges? And also in a recent talk, you mentioned a quote by Rob Proctor who said, gardening is the world's slowest performance art. And so um, for those who need immediate gratification or (laughs) just the snap of the finger beauty, what's your advice in overcoming those sort of challenges? That's absolutely true. That is a big challenge because of people's expectations and and development timelines and restoration timelines are, are not the same. And this is not like a landscaper putting down a sod lawn that they basically they roll out sod and when they drive away you basically have a lawn there this is something that can take years even under good conditions and i think it's critical that people understand going in the realistic timelines for getting results and the benefits are the native grass costs a fraction to to maintain of what it costs the the turf grass lawns and and uses a fraction of the herbicide pesticide water or any of those other things that are used so heavily on on turf grass so it's really worth it in the in the long run but there really is no way to move the dial ahead faster and if you have a situation where there is no water and you're just putting down native seed and it could take a decade for that for that to establish, particularly since the last two years, they say are the driest years in 1100 years in this region. So we're just not gonna see results without irrigation in, in that kind of situation. But the other part of this discussion is we don't have the water. We do not have the water, and yet we keep doing this over and over again, putting down these thirsty landscapes the average person in Colorado uses 150 gallons of water per day 
and 60% of that goes to landscaping. So it's 90 gallons of water per person per day to keep exotic landscapes on life support. And, and we do not have the resources for that. So we're going to have to come to terms with this. And part of it is accepting we have to play by nature's rules in terms of what landscapes require, what is really sustainable here, and how long does it take to, to get things to establish. One thing I like to do is take photographs of these areas because, as you mentioned, you know, um, Rob Proctor called gardening the world's slowest performance art. And if you take pictures, you can see how things evolve over time. You can see that some, something is happening. It's just happening at a, you know, a different timeline than the way we usually see things getting built. Does the work of the High Plains Environmental Center have any special significance for those that do not have a yard, have no access to the natural environment, um, or folks that are disabled, indigenous, people of color, people from all walks of life? There's a lot in that question. I think one of the things is all of the programs that we offer are free. We offer all of our educational programs at no cost. We offer raised garden beds to people in our community garden at no cost. And those could be people who live here in the, the lakes at Santerra or, or nearby or, or anyone. So as a nonprofit, our mission is environmental education and environmental stewardship. And we are really mandated by IRS to, to offer that to the public in, in general. In terms of specifically the um, kind of reconciliation with indigenous people, that is a big focus here at High Plains Environmental Center. And we have a, <clears throat> a garden that showcases plants used by tribes of the High Plains and have frequently hosted events here that are culturally oriented events about um, you know about the indigenous people who have existed in this region for over 12,000 years. So we are very interested in, in creating awareness of Colorado didn't just spring into an existence in the 1850s. It, um, there's been a, a culture here that has existed for over, like I say, over 12,000 years. And there are values connected with that culture that, that we need. We need to understand a little bit more about our relationship to other things, that the world isn't really just here for us to use, but we are, are a part of the, the community of, of the land. And Aldo Leopold says, when we see land as a community to which we belong, we will we'll begin to use it with, with love and respect. And I think that's an important aspect of understanding indigenous cultures, I also think that there is some reconciliation that, that needs to happen because the we we live on land that was taken through violent means and uh, without um, compensation that was promised through treaties and, and so on. And I don't think that that is a, you can build a successful and sustainable future on that kind of a foundation. In the Suburbitat book, it's mentioned that wetland environments 
comprise less than 2% of Colorado's total land area and are utilized by 75% of all wildlife species at some point in their life cycle. Can you expand upon that and what the significance of that is for listeners? Well, one of the earlier governors, and and I can't recall which one, wanted to arrange counties in Colorado along watersheds, which really would have been a very smart way to do things because who is upstream and who is downstream are they're dependent on one another and we have significantly altered the hydrology in, in this area you know they used to have this thing called the, the the june rise when all the snow melted that would just tear trees out the south platte river didn't have the trees on it that it had had now or the you know the Platte the North Platte the South Platte these rivers didn't have the trees they have now because they were just come tearing down from the mountains and rip all that stuff out they actually have to create sandbars now in Kearney Nebraska for the sandtail cranes because the the scrubbing action of that sort of flood doesn't exist anymore so they they have to replicate it one of the interesting things that we can do is whenever developers build impermeable surfaces, rooftops and parking lots and roads. The government requires that flood mitigation be put in place so that all that water doesn't just go someplace where we don't want it to go. So stormwater ponds and stormwater conveyances are are created. And the previous version of this, and you know, the 1950s and 60s, as water just went in a, in a, a storm drain, it was just piped raw into a um, lake or river and just, just dumped with all that sediment and runoff in, into the river. Now there's more of an idea of creating water quality ponds that allow the sediment to drop out of, of the runoff. And if those ponds contain native vegetation, it can help to sequester some of the nutrient runoff that comes from various activities in in uh, the way we, that we live, fertilizing and, and so on. And using up that nutrient runoff can prevent algae in our ponds and lakes, which the algae reduces the wa- oxygen in, in the water and can kill off fish and other aquatic life. But also the ponds themselves, these urban stormwater ponds, are a a tremendous opportunity for restoring habitat for wetland plants and also for amphibians and birds and all kinds of things. I think that this is one of our best opportunities for restoring nature in the built environment, is the way we look at building stormwater ponds and, and conveyances. If you are just tuning in, this is a public affair on KGNU. I'm Stacy Johnson. On today's segment, we are visiting with Jim Tulstrup, Executive Director of the High Plains Environmental Center, discussing a range of conservation topics within an urban environment. Some other statements that stood out to me in your book, one is, um, the short grass prairie is the area that has been most impacted by agriculture and land development and is considered to be the most degraded ecosystem in North America. And another quote, it's important to note that merely planting native grass does not make a prairie. 
A real prairie is like an old growth forest that requires centuries, if not millennia, to establish. Once destroyed, it does not reestablish quickly. And so those statements seem daunting. And for folks considering native landscapes or HOAs and such, can the High Plains Environmental Center be a place of hope amongst those sort of daunting realities? Well, if you fly into DIA and you look down, you can see how dramatically altered that, that landscape is. You see all those, those crop circles with the irrigation. They say that of the, the high plains, the, the region that we live in, which extends from, from north Texas up to southern Montana, is the most, one of the most degraded ecosystems in the United States. Less than 3% of the high, high plains is still intact. So that means all the animals that, that live there, the black-tailed prairie dogs, the black-footed ferrets, and so on, um, disappear because, because that environment is gone. Yes, the, the, a prairie is like an old forest. There's a lot more going on there than just grass. There's all, most of the biodiversity of the prairie is, is below ground, and there's all kinds of soil microbiota and things happening there. That doesn't automatically replicate. And it isn't like E.O. Wilson called the New England forest the ecological wonder of the 20th century. At the beginning of the 20th century, Massachusetts was 90% agriculture. At the end of the 20th century, it was 70% forest. And that forest replicated itself. But that's a region that gets about an inch of rain a week. Here we get 12 to 14 inches of, of precipitation in a year. And in some years, we don't get that. So the shortgrass prairie isn't just going to restore itself. There has been, in, in a lot of places along the Front Range, this buy and dry strategy where municipalities would buy farms, strip off the water rights, and just abandon the land. And the land just turns into coastal weeds, and, and it's not just going to turn back into shortgrass prairie. Um, laws are changing so that isn't possible anymore. If that land's going to be stripped of water rights and, and abandoned, it has to be restored with native grass. And as we've said earlier, that is a long process. But an interesting example of how the, the shortgrass prairie could be restored lies in the, the story of the, the black-footed ferret reintroduction. And this is the most endangered mammal in, in North America is thought to be extinct until a few, a few animals, I think maybe a total of 16, were found around Matisse, Wyoming. And from that, through a, a, a federal program, the ferrets have been bred. There's a facility in Carr, Colorado, just north of, of Fort Collins, where these animals are bred and then they're reintroduced into the wild. A lot of ranchers are resistant to the idea of, of introducing a federally protected animal onto their land. And also the, the prairie dogs require large expanses of prairie dog colonies, something that, that ranchers also don't like. But a um, monetary compensation was put in place to pay the ranchers for the areas that, that are kept in, in prairie dogs. And the safe harbor agreement was put in place 
so that if um, you know somebody runs over a um, black-footed ferret with their pickup or something like that, you know, unless they in- intentionally harm the animal, there is no no penalty or or um, so again the safe harbor agreement protects them from any liability. And I think in that there's a great example of how we can restore the short grass prairie. And it goes back to your your prior question about ecology versus economy. There needs to be some kind of monetary compensation if somebody is putting the time and and expense and and limiting their own use of their their property in in restoring the environment. And in the in the built environment in in designed communities. A lot of developers are attempting to use the, the native grasses because they understand that in the long run it costs a lot less to manage. It doesn't use lots of water that they may not actually have available. I think developers get it in terms of the, the economics of the situation. And again, you know, it, it's how to get the these ecological restoration values to work together with with economic values but when you can get those to work together that is our our recipe for success how should listeners think about weeds within the concepts of restoration sustainable landscaping or native plants as a person who has been a gardener and knows land well we have many more challenges in this region than it, what is typical. Um, partly, on the large scale, if you're a developer and you're trying to establish native um, habitat and native plants, what other properties around you are, are doing are, is really critical. That's why we have, have things called a weed cooperative. If you, if you manage weeds and, and adjacent landowners don't manage weeds, those are going to blow back, like quite literally, on on your property, and that's that's an important consideration. In terms of strategies of how to manage weeds, one thing I I have to say is, we are not averse to the use of herbicides. And people will will ask, like, you're a nature center, you use herbicides. I would say since Rachel Carson's Silent Spring, a lot of chemicals have have evolved that are very, very specific targets. They don't even kill all plants. They'll kill certain plants. There are some things like the candida thistle that can really only be controlled effectively with um, very selective herbicides. And one thing is in restoring natural areas, we use a fraction, a tiny fraction, of the amount of chemical that is used on your typical school, ball field, on people's front lawns, and we use it on very specific targets. So here at HPC, I employ people who have master's degrees in in agronomy, who have degrees in, in, in range management and so on. And these people know the difference between plants. They can, they can identify plants in the field and and they'll use a very specific chemical on a very specific plant. So it could be like, you know, ounces per acre of, of chemical that, that are, is being used. Um, 
a fraction, again, of what's being used on, on turf grass and, and used on very specific targets. Our goal is to have less invasive plants and more native plants. And it isn't something that is going to fix itself without, without human intervention. There are some of these plants that it's like Pandora's box. You really, once, once it's out in the environment, there are weeds that have been introduced from, from Europe and Asia that are really never going to be completely gone from this region. And if we want to have a healthy ecosystem, we're, we are going to have to manage those on our property because the invasives just outcompete the native plants and don't provide the same benefits as to pollinators and wildlife that evolved with the, with the native plants. And one of the things I think is, is who gets their first wins? So if you, if you seed native grasses, but lots of invasive plants come up, they can outcompete the, the native grass. And, but once you have a healthy stand of grass and, and native plants, it's very, very difficult for, for weeds to get established in, in a healthy plant community. And one of the, it's important also how that is managed. So people are, are planting native grasses, but they're treating it like a lawn and you're scalping the native grass and, or, or even, I've seen a lot of disasters with buffalo grass, which is a great turf grass, but people scalp it and then they like water it like it's Kentucky blue grass. And you're just gonna have a weedy, unhappy stand of grass. And, and because we haven't seen a lot of good examples, I think that that's why more people aren't, aren't doing it. Is there anything you would like to mention that hasn't been covered? We're in a situation now that our landscapes have to be more than just pretty. Human beings in my lifetime, the human population on Earth has doubled. We are now over 7 billion people. I heard the statistic from David Attenborough that 96% of the weight of mammals on Earth is human beings, their livestock, and pets. And the other 4% is what we call wildlife. That is a very daunting statistic. And there was a time when human beings were struggling to, to carve, claw their survival out of the wilderness and out of nature. It has completely turned around to the point that, um, as Doug Tallamy says, 98% of the lower 48 states has been altered for human use. And on Earth, we are, we are outpacing nature dr- dramatically. This is more than just a save nature because it's pretty, save nature because, you know, birds are nice or because we like to see animals. We cannot survive without biodiversity on Earth. We cannot survive on a planet that is occupied only by human beings and their livestock and pets. So it is our own qualified self-interest that we have to work to, to save biodiversity. And all extinctions happen at home. You know, we don't have elephants and lions wandering around our gardens, but if you were a farmer in Africa, you, you might want to see elephants disappear because they're stomping through your fields. We need to think in terms of, of uh, how can we preserve the biodiversity where we live and, and 
Audubon did a study in 2019 that said that 60% of birds in North America are threatened with extinction due to climate change. And that is a just a catastrophic number. I mean, they, we talk about we are in an age of mega extinction, you know, a, a huge a huge period of extinction. And we really have to do everything we can to prevent that from happening. Not only because we have no right to destroy life on Earth, but also because we will be destroying ourselves in the process. But turning our lawn into a native landscape, this is the low-hanging fruit. This, this, you know, this should have been done yesterday. It's something that's very easy to do. It's beautiful, and it's, and it's appropriate to the climate where we live. Jim Tolstrup, I appreciate your time today and sharing your wisdom with listeners of KGNU. Thank you very much. For more on today's interview with Jim Tulserup and the work of the High Plains Environmental Center, please visit the KGNU website at news.kgnu.org. This is Stacey Johnson for A Public Affair. Carbon copies from the hills above the forest line. Acid streams are flowing ill across the countryside. I don't care.